Wow, you guys really loved the first episode of We Are Recording. Even though I called it Are We Recording? I made mistakes, okay? I was launching a network. It was very stressful. Sometimes you have you have little mental leaks like that. It's okay. But the important thing is, like I said, you guys loved it. Thank you for letting me know by sending me tweets, sending me emails and Facebook messages. Continue to do that. Let me know what you think of these new shows and the people that are on them. Also, if you want to continue to help support the show, doing something like submitting a review on iTunes or letting a friend know about the show really helps. And if you want to go a step beyond that, go to FitCast.network and either buying something through the, the Amazon tab at the top or maybe becoming a Patreon of one of the other shows or even making a one-time or a monthly contribution through PayPal. Those all help me continue to deliver the show every single week. One last thing about this show. I actually recorded some of these things out of order. So you're going to hear Blake this week, even though I recorded it after Tannis, because I thought it might work better not having back-to-back kind of actor and, and showbiz type shows. This is more on the, the side of, of writing and the great stuff that Blake has done. So I really hope you enjoy it. Here it is. We are recording with Blake J. Harris, author of Console Wars and uh, doing tons of stuff with um, Slash Film, in, including uh, the awesome How Did This Get Made uh, series, which is just absolute must-read material and a must-listen-to podcast. Blake, thanks for taking the time to uh, jump on and, and chat for a little bit. Of course. For the rest of my life, I will always say yes whenever you ask me to chat with you on any show, so... Well, I, it must have been it must have been almost two years ago that I think we first talked about uh, console wars when that was that was coming out and we we talked on uh, back in my play uh, about that and that that book I think I've listened to, and this is the weird thing it's like that I think it's the book that I've listened to the most because I've gone through it about three times it's just like really good when you're in the car and you just want to hear the crazy story of <laughs> Nintendo versus Sega and the people and like the characters involved. It's something that uh, I, I just love going back to. So um, what, I mean, it's been, it's, it's been a couple of years now. Uh, has anything kind of changed for you in, in your relationship with that, with that, with that book and with that material? Yeah, a lot of things. Uh, I mean, we'll get into a little bit later how just writing that book, the process of writing it, as well as the fact that I sold it and it was my first professional writing thing really changed my life. Um, and, and, you know, that happened to kind of a couple of years before the book came out because you sell the book proposal in advance. But definitely just in the two years since it's come out, my life has continued to change, uh, mostly for the better. And uh, it's just been really interesting. You know, I've gone through my first time. I've been told publicly that I'm a horrible writer, uh, which has happened plenty of times, though luckily it seems to be the minority opinion. Mm. Um, and, and like most significantly, I would say the way it's impacted my life the most is, you know, my life is writing. That's what I want it to be. I, I, I love doing it, whether it's a new book I'm working on or um, stuff for Slash Film and the How Did This Get Made guys or whatever. But, you know, actually having a book on my resume has helped open doors um, just in terms of sources. You know, when I was doing console wars, it was, hey, I'm this guy who has no credits and you've never heard of me before. And there's a chance that this book will never see the light of day. But can I have some of your time? Mm -hmm. And at least now I have, uh, 
you know, a reference point. And, and, as, and you know, like I said, as someone who, who writing is everything to me, that, that's all I could ask for is being able to speak with more people. Well, one of the we'll go back in time a little bit, because one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on this show, which is it's really a show about just talking with people that have gone on and, and done amazing stuff, how they got there and, you know, the the things that they had to overcome, the obstacles in the way, the successes and the failures. And uh, even like when we first chatted all the way back on, on Back in My Play, I think we talked a little bit about how, like you just said a second ago, this was like your first book. And before that, you were doing something drastically different. How did, how did that, <laughs> how did that transition happen? How did you make it happen? Um, that's a, that's my life story. Uh, so, you know, a little bit of background. I, I didn't really, I wasn't that into writing. I wasn't actually, I never even really read books for fun. By the time I was like in high school, I watched a lot of syndicated television and, uh, you know, kind of wasted my life away as much as a, uh, kid who got good grades and was a relatively nice person could. Um, but, you know, I wasn't doing anything that nowadays interests me. Um, and, and I wasn't doing much at all other than sitting on the couch and uh, eating Milano's and watching uh, Saved by the Bell a lot. That's, and that's, so, that's pretty solid. That's pretty good. <laughs> but uh, during my senior year of high school, I actually started reading books for fun at first to try to impress a girl. And then um, after doing so, I realized, oh, my God, you know, books are great. <laughs> Why was I like trying so hard not to read these things for school? Do you remember uh, what book that was? Yeah, it was a book that <laughs> it was called Many Lives, Many Masters. Mm -hmm. And it was about uh, <laughs> it was like a new agey sci uh, self-help uh, type of book about I mean, not like a self-help book, but it was about how uh, uh, I guess about reincarnation. Um, so maybe it's definitely not the genre that I write in, <laughs> um, but but it just opened my eyes. But really, mm -hmm. the second book I read. That was kind of me thinking like, oh, this is not a chore. This is actually enjoyable. And then I read Catcher in the Rye, which I had never read in high school. And that was the one that like blew me away and mm. made me jealous and, and made me inspired. And so from there, since Catcher in the Rye is a book that you typically read in high school that I had somehow avoided, um, you know, I, I, went, I went through the whole roster of, uh, you know, The Great Gatsby, mm. uh, you know, All Quiet on the Western Front. And I basically... I remember reading like 50 of those like classic books that either I had, I had never come across in my English classes or I had pretended to read and actually just read like Cliff's Notes um, and, and really developed a love for reading. And then uh, that was my senior year of high school. And so by the time I started my freshman year at college, um, I was at Georgetown in D.C. And, and I realized that I, you know, in my heart of hearts, I wanted to write. I wanted to create things that people would you know, as, as good of a quality or, or, you know, I wanted to be the one writing these things. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think I had great talent. Um, but, uh, but that's what I wanted to do. And so I was actually in the business school there and I ended up transferring into the English program, which really in the end probably didn't matter because Georgetown is not very good for anything, uh, outside of foreign service or, uh, business. I think, mm -hmm. uh, it's not a very, uh, creative, you know, it's not it's creative arts are not the focus there, but as I kind of learned and has been a pattern in my life, that's probably something that was helpful to me. Um, you know, I, I think that I thrive best when I'm left to my own devices and, um, and I like learning on my own and I like being, I like, requ I like being required to be self-motivated mm -hmm. um, and kind of figuring it out on my own. And so, uh, that, that's kind of what I did. My, I kept reading. I started writing um, stories. My junior year of college, I studied abroad, um, but 
I, you know, I was technically in Spain, but I didn't see much of the country because I spent time living with this family and uh, just working on a book. I wrote a book that was, you know, my coming of age Catherine the Rye ripoff that uh, I'm sure was terrible, but uh, but at least I wrote this thing and finished it. And then my senior year, I wrote another book, and uh, and I started to get pretty good at writing. Um, and then I encountered that problem of. You know, how do you actually do this for a living? Mm -hmm. um, or how do you, uh, or like what, you know, even if you are doing it, who, how do you like get it out to people? Um, and that is really, you know, one of the hardest things with writing, uh, figuring out how to monetize that and also how to distribute your content. And that was something that would end up taking me eight years to really figure out, or at least until some success came my way. And so in the meantime, I uh, ended up, working in uh, finance, and I had a job trading commodities for Brazilian clients. I was uh, trading sugar, coffee, soybeans for like Brazilian clients who owned sugar mills or, or had farms or, you know, or they weren't the individuals that owned it, but they ran companies that had, you know, either collectives of these things or, or um, you know, basically uh, it was helping them hedge and, and speculate on commodities. Yeah, that, yeah. that sounds like a blast. You know, well, it's certainly not what I wanted to be doing, um, but I did find it intellectually intriguing um, when I first started, you know, um, because it was a lot like that movie Trading Places, <laughs> recall, with the trading of the frozen, the frozen concentrated orange juice at the end, <laughs> where, where it's like this pit of people like shouting and, and like, you know, you try to make a deal with this guy. And, mm -hmm. and so as a broker... Um, you know, we weren't taking positions, we were trading for clients and executing their business. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a matter of, all right, I want to have a relationship with this guy, or this guy could tell me what's going on. Um, and I wasn't physically on the trading floor. And so there was kind of a lot of like, um, strategy to it. But, but a couple years after I started there, um, the markets went electronic and that made the whole thing, um, kind of like 100% transparent in terms of what was being done, but it also made it um, completely anonymous for the most part. So having like alliances or, you know, there wasn't for someone like myself who enjoys the kind of like the narrative aspect and, and seeing it from different people's eyes that no longer existed. And it was, um, you know, it, it, that, then it became a job that I was very eager to not have, but I, I did have it for several more years. I, I, no matter how many times I watch trading places, I can never understand what's going on in that climatic scene of just people writing stuff down on sheets of paper and just like throwing their hands in the air, making numbers with their hands. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't really understand how they kept track of that or how they well, exactly. got people to honor deals that ended right. up being bad. But, uh, you know, so I guess by the time I started, at least that part of it was like a little bit electronic. Um, to some extent, but uh, yeah, it's also a movie. Crazy, but I didn't even have anything like uh, trading places, and so I had uh, this job trading commodities. I knew that I, at that point, I definitely wanted to write as a career. I, I really didn't know how to do it. I thought that film was probably the best way in because that at least has some semblance of like a career track. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like uh, going to law school or getting your medical degree where you know. You take the LSAT and then you get into law school and then you apply for summer internships. You know, there's still not really that kind of a track to it. But at least I felt like it would make me in my mind a real writer. And so uh, my plan was to save up money. Uh, I lived with my grandma for a year um, or, or a little bit more and, and didn't spend money on anything and saved up a bunch of money to go to film school. Um, I applied to a couple of film schools. 
Uh, I think I got rejected from all of them except for Loyola Marymount. Um, and then it was kind of the situation where it was like, do I want to pay? Uh, I, I don't even know what it costs. But let's say $25,000 a year mm-hmm. um, and spend all this money that I've saved and take out loans to end up having a degree that doesn't entitle me to anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, um, you know, I, and at the same time, I was always pretty good at being self-motivated and writing stuff my own. So it was, it's a real concern. And, and I don't know, there's certainly no answer on whether you should go to film school or do it on your own. Uh, you know, it, it works differently for different people. And a lot of it is the network value and just being around other people. Um, and so what I ended up splurging all my money on was I wrote a uh, screenplay with, a. Uh, a friend of mine named Jonah Tulis, and uh, it was about it was a feature length script about competitive rock paper scissors, a mockumentary, and we ended up filming that movie. And what started as like a, <laughs> we'll just do this on the side, and each put in like a couple thousand dollars, ended up uh, eating up my life savings and uh, and taking up few years of our work to make this movie called The Flying Scissors. But that's like that's going all in, right? That's like you you're doing what I mean what. A lot of people are, are a lot of times scared to do, which is kind of like put all the cards or, you know, put all the chips on the table and say, like, yeah, I'm going to bet everything I got on this on this thing and, and see what happens. It's true, though. I always felt like I never felt like I was was going all in in the sense that I still had my finance job. So at least mm-hmm. I had, you know, if I lost all the money, which is and what ended up happening, um, you know, it wasn't like I had to. Um, figure out a new housing situation or maybe ask my parents if I could live with them. Um, so, you know, it was definitely a significant risk on my part and, uh, you know, I can't regret it cause it ended up being part of whatever it got me here, but I don't know that it was a, a risk worth taking. And so what happened was we made this movie, the flying scissors. Um, I, you know, I think it's pretty good. It's, it's not the greatest movie ever, but it, it kind of is what it is. It was meant to be kind of like a arrest development type inspired Christopher Guest movie. So a little bit faster than the typical mockumentary. And so we made this and, you know, I went through what I imagine a lot of people go through when they go all in on something where, you know, at first it's extremely daunting. You know, I was the producer on this movie and I realized that it was, that, that was, you know, that was the hardest few weeks of my life um, to, you know, to make sure that every, we had everything and, and so, you know, we go through that and then we have a movie and then I think it's the greatest thing ever. And we're kind of like, you know, joking about booking tickets at Sundance and who we're going to be hobnobbing with and who we want to work with next. Um, and then there was that realization of when we got, didn't get into Sundance. And I think we applied to about 25 festivals in to- total. We got rejected from all of them except for one. And then Jonah didn't want to go to the one because he thought that that would make it obvious that we got rejected from the others. If like, you know, and, and I, he's probably right from a perception standpoint, like at least it looks like we thought, you know, we didn't apply to festivals. It's not that kind of a movie or something. Um, so anyway, you know, nothing happened with this thing, which was uh, really, really dispiriting because not only did I put my life savings into it and Jonah did as well. And um, but it was also, uh, you know, I, I had a lot of hopes in this thing, you know, it wasn't just the money. It was the, this was kind of like my one chance and nothing really came of it. And so, uh, Jonah and I continued to write screenplays on the side, but nothing really happened with this. And, and part of that too is because, um, we didn't try to make anything happen with it. I think, you know, I think it's, it is obviously proactive to apply to film festivals, mm-hmm. but even if we had gotten in, I think our strategy would have been like, the rest will take care of itself. You know, um, little did we realize that, that it's probably not the best approach, um, that you really have to kind of just c- keep coming up with 
ways to get it out there, ways to try to make money doing it or, or whatever. Our go- you know, basically, we should have figured out what our goal was and figured out 50 ways to make that happen. And so the turning point with that project where at least we were able to salvage something was um, a couple of years had gone by. I had uh, the distance and sanity of, of time. Um, you know, I didn't feel as emotionally connected to it. I did, every time I watched the movie, I didn't look at it and think, wow, here's this thing that I put all my money into that is not paying back in any way. But actually, I was able to watch it. And I thought, you know, this is a, this is a pretty funny movie. It's, uh, again, it's not the greatest movie ever, but it's, it's a good movie. It is what it set out to do. And so uh, Joan and I made a trailer. Um, which is also like, you know, in hindsight, probably one of the first things we should have done, you know, realizing that that's a great tool to help sell things. That's a great hook. And so the trail, you know, we basically had two minutes that were, that were very funny. Um, and so I started to think, you know, my, the college I went to used to have a, uh, a movie night. They used to have movie nights on the weekend where Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday night, they would play a movie that was between, um, the theaters and, and video mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, like, 50 students would go each night or something like that. And so I contacted them um, over the summer before the school year started and said, hey, you know, I, I graduated from the school. Here's a, this movie I made. Here's a trailer. I'd love it if you could play it one night. And they said, oh, yeah, this looks great. Um, and, and that was also part of us realizing that the, that the prime demographic for this was probably college kids and, and maybe even inebriated or stoned college kids. But that was like a good demographic. So Georgetown thought, yeah, this is great. Yeah, we'd love to show it. And so uh, after that, I started thinking, well, maybe, maybe other schools would show it too, even if I didn't go there. And so I spent several weeks um, scouring the internet like a, like a stalker and looking up college kids to figure out who was like the student activities coordinator at <laughs> literally 500 different schools. I contacted these 500 associations or these students, um, kind of made my pitch for why I, they, I would hope that they would play this movie. And, uh, and it really became like a numbers game, I think, like in the end, like 10% of them said yes or a little bit less. So we ended up having the movie screened at like 42 or 43 schools. Um, some of them <laughs> said, oh, yeah, let's, we definitely want to do this. Just tell us how much it costs. So then I started thinking, okay, well, then we could charge them because they're obviously already agreed to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I mentioned that story because not only is it, did it did provide a little bit of a uh, uh, peace of mind for that whole experience and some closure to it and ended up leading to us selling the film to Warner Brothers digital distribution. But because that experience was so much, it reminded me so much of the beginning of the console wars experience. And and I think that it really prepared me for that where it made me um, okay with hearing no Mm -hmm. a lot of times. It made me, it made me realize that when people, sometimes when people say no, it's not a no. It's like a maybe, um, and and trying to figure out how to persuade them without ever, you know, really trying to be annoying, um, and and also um, just kind of how to like branch out, how to use the fact that some certain schools were screening it as leverage to try to get others tools to screen it, and and that was like an experience that really paid off well during the early stages of console wars. So through through that whole project, um, I mean, it seems from from the story that it would almost be in the category of a, of a success. Um, would, would you would you consider it that, or um, you know, I guess along with that, what what were the biggest lessons that you that you're able <laughs> to take from that into your future projects? Well, I would say I wouldn't call it a success. I would call it it's a success in the way that there was life lessons, but I don't know that you have to pay. $120,000 or whatever the budget was to learn the life lessons. So 
I mean, look, I would, I, I never understand the questions. Like if you could do it over, cause you can't mm-hmm. do stuff over. And, and obviously I'm very happy with where my life has gone since then, but I don't think that doing that film or even the success of doing that film, um, helped in any way with my writing or my film career. So of course the lessons I learned and, and the experience gave me skills, but it's not like maybe I could have developed those skills elsewhere and, and it's not like that directly led to anything. So again, you know, I don't know whether I would say it's a success or a failure. I probably would caution someone from doing the same side of thing, or at least, you know, suggest that they, um, figure out what their goal is and, and come up with ways to try to accomplish that. But in the end, um, you know, we did get some distribution out of it. And, and the, the biggest lessons I learned were, you know, there's a bunch of different, different ones. Cause I was, I, I co-wrote it. And then I also produced it and was trying to sell it. So, you know, I would say that the lessons kind of uh, oscillated between as the creative person and the most important one there was uh, killing your babies. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when we had scenes that were, I thought were very funny, but didn't add to the story. We actually had one character that we ended up having to cut from the movie. So that's a really hard decision to make, especially when you don't really have anyone to like talk to about it. And it was a friend of ours that we were cutting from the movie and we knew he had given so much time and had kind of taken this leap of faith with us. And so, and it's also not like, it's not like, Hey buddy, sorry, we cut you, but our, you know, it's not like we premiered at Sundance. So like he could understand, or at least we were like, well, at least, you know, we got what we want out of it and sorry to cut this guy. You know, um, we were just trying basically just learning the lesson of trying to do what's best for the creative property and taking yourself and your ego out of it. And, and having those hard conversations where you tell someone that, they're not a part of the movie anymore through no fault of their own, but ultimately it's your fault for not realizing sooner that <laughs> this doesn't make sense. Um, and then in terms of like, as a producer, um, I think a lot of the money that we spent could have been not, could have been significantly less if we had planned better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we definitely got in over our heads, which was a big part of the learning experience. You know, it's good when you're, when you don't ha- have a location for the next day and you need to figure it out or sometimes you need to pay um, up because you have no other option. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the distribution thing, that that was really the big thing I'd say is like um, unless unless you are already successful and have people who are going to help you um, distribute your work or find a way to monetize your work, um, you really have to – that part is just as important as the creative part of the process, or at least somebody needs to be thinking about that just as importantly. And so the fact that we kind of, our plan was like, let's just make a good movie. And then some people will just give us briefcases of money. Um, that's not a really good plan. Um, and, and I suspect it, that's probably also, there's probably still people who go through that, but there are at least a lot more channels now to distribute your work. This mm-hmm. was in 2006, which is not that long ago, but, but you know, I, I think, it wasn't there were there weren't as many outlets um and then i don't know um if we would have done anything differently with those outlets so i don't know i guess the number one thing that i learned is to try to speak with as many people who have gone through the experience mm-hmm. beforehand um and to really formulate a plan and um try to expect certain outcomes and and as i said you know i felt like that experience really did help me a lot with console wars um in a lot of ways with dealing with sources and also um, the importance of, of marketing, which we didn't have for our movie. 
How, how do you, for whether it be for a movie or for, for something even more colossal like Console Wars, how do you keep all of the data or all the characters or all the story bits that you want to make sure that you get in there organized? You just have like a huge whiteboard that you keep everything on. Is it an Excel <laughs> spreadsheet? Like, how do you, that's the thing. As me personally, as a terrible storyteller, whenever I do any writing, I'm always like, oh, I forgot to put this thing in. Now I get to go back and like put it in here. I just organizing the kind of story that I want to tell and put the pieces in the right order. That's a great question. Um, and, and I think that, well, I'll answer it in a couple of ways. One is most people that I have collaborated with to use index cards or use a whiteboard. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> like index cards on like a chalkboard or something yeah, like that? Yeah, like, on like, a, like a corkboard type thing. Um, like yeah, our editor so, yeah. for the for console wars did that and, and it's really helpful to him and it does help me, but I have like the stupidest problem where I, I, my handwriting is so bad and I hate looking at it. So I can't, so everything I do has to be like typed. You know, I, if I look like, <laughs> if I looked at the name Tom Kalinske on my board, I would start to dislike Tom Kalinske just because of <laughs> how I wrote it. So that's not really fair. Um, but, but I think that, you know, the other thing that I really like about that question is that, um, between age 20 when I was in Spain writing a terrible book and uh, age 30, when I was able to write a book that would be published by Harper Collins. Um, I don't know that my actual sentence writing that the prose itself was much better. I always, I think had a, a decent skill for writing interesting sentences, but, but it was my storytelling that got a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really what improved through my 10,000 hours. And, uh, and I think that to answer your question, uh, part of it too was identifying when I'm speaking to people, with, like you know, kind of. I always I imagine almost like Tom Cruise in Minority Report, just like moving things around mm. um, and saying like, "Oh, okay, I could see how that would maybe be used for this if this worked." Um, and and I think that I probably um, don't use organizational lists and things like that the same way that um, I think you know most people that I work with in film and and in writing do so more than I do. Um, but, but I think that that's one thing that I have gotten really good at doing in my head and kind of preparing ahead of time. Um, and, 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 you know, that maybe makes it sound like I'm just naturally very good at this, which I don't think I am. I think that I have developed an act for storytelling. But, but the other answer and what I'm working on right now today uh, for my new book is an outline. I think that uh, the outlining process is, uh, is, is so important. And, uh, you know, I used to think that, kind of outlining something maybe took the fun out of it a little bit because you already knew what was going to happen. But mm. the, you know, even the outline that I submitted to Harper Collins for console wars changed dramatically uh, between that and the actual product, but it was so helpful knowing, all right, this week, these are the two chapters that in theory I'm working on and then taking it from there. And so um, the outline stuff helps me too, because um, you know, it, it's almost like each chapter is a container for a certain idea or for a certain part of a story and so it helps me connect dots and and um, really start to figure out w- which things go together um, and really helps kind of spark and push that conversation along in my head. Yeah, I, I think I, I, I'm trying to think of the next question that I want to ask. So I, I guess maybe the, the next best place to, to go would maybe even be going uh, backwards again, unfortunately, because I'm a terrible host. But let's let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about just 
the initial first words of of a screenplay or something that you're going to be writing that's that's going to be long form because again I think that's that's the thing when people sit down they have an idea of something that they want to tell in terms of a story but they just don't know how to get that that ball rolling do you do you have any any issues with that or any kind of like tips or, or tricks or strategies that you use to to make that process start um yeah I mean I'm definitely uh, I've always been more of like the uh, the the school of philosophy where you're better off just like writing ten pages and maybe nine of them are crap, mm-hmm. and then it, you know at least you'll end up with one page or stuff that you know will reveal itself to you than to just sit there and try to come up with the perfect sentence mm-hmm. and all that. Um, but but I kind of think that as I've as my career has evolved, that that ten pages of crap thing has kind of become more of like the outline. That's where I try to get that out of the way. And, and the best advice that I would have and what I really try to think about is, um, you know, put yourself in the seat of the reader. Um, and, and that might sound obvious, but more so of like under, understand where you are. It, you know, if it's a book proposal, this is somebody who's never heard of me, who probably is only going to give it like a half a page of reading before they make up, you know, it's, it would be like, it wouldn't be surprising if they read a half a page and thought, all right, no. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of like knowing your audience and uh, trying to come up with a, a good hook to uh, get that target audience in. And, you know, I think that I spend a, a lot, uh, you know, the majority of my time when writing um, a, a book chapter or a story um, or even like something I wrote last week, I spend so much of the time coming up with the first paragraph um, once I kind of know how the story is going to unfold. And then I spend a lot of time thinking about like the beginnings of each section or each chapter because I think that that's kind of – how you're framing the story. And I don't think about it, you know, it's it, on the one hand, it's like, you know, I'm trying to sell the reader. Um, but, but doing so actually helps distill things for me. So, um, you know, if you were st- starting a screenplay, yes, you want to hook the person right away and that's important, but thinking about what would hook someone oftentimes leads me to good mental conversations or actual conversations about like what the story is about Mm -hmm. and why this should be the thing to open it up. Um, so I don't know. I mean, you're better off at the end of the day, having written stuff than not having, than having trying to find the perfect sentence. But, but at the same time I have days, I remember there was like that, uh, in, in console wars, there's one chapter, uh, at the beginning of part two. So it's after like, you kind of see the Sega story and you start to see the Nintendo story. And I literally spent um, seven hours on one paragraph and that's, mm-hmm. it goes against my advice, but some days you just get stuck. And then like, I would just say like, all right, move on. <laughs> but I couldn't. And I just kept thinking about it. So sometimes you kind of just have to try to accommodate whatever part of, of your mind it is. That's, um, wanting to write in whatever way. Hey, past Kevin and Blake, can I stop you for just one second? Just pause. Time out. All right, Zach Morris, time out real quick. So I, I have to deal with the things like supporting this network and making sure that I can continue to do this stuff every single week. So do you mind? I'm just going to talk to the audience for a second. Cool. All right. So people like to get stuff through Amazon.com, right? So the best way that you can probably support the network right now is before you go to Amazon, take one more step. Go to fitcast.network. Click on the Amazon button in the upper right-hand corner. That will take you right back to the front page of Amazon. And then you can do your shopping. And Amazon is just like, hey, Kev, like that is super nice of you for letting people know about our website. Why don't we give you like 3% or 2% or whatever it is back? 
And it's not a lot, but if a lot of people do it, it, it will add up and it will help me support this network and, and cover the bills, things like that. So maybe you want to pick up Blake's book. Maybe. And this is what I would suggest. I love cold brewing my coffee now. And this is something that I'm just talking about. I don't get, this isn't a sponsor of the show. If you do want to sponsor the show, go to fitcast.network and click on the advertise tab. But anyways, the the cold brew toddy, T-O-D-D-Y, this thing allows you to cold brew a bunch of coffee in your house. It is super cheap, and you can just keep, like I just keep the stuff in mason jars in my fridge. All right, and whenever I want coffee, I pour a little bit out. I think it's like three parts water to one part of the cold brew that you make, and then you have iced coffee, especially the summer coming up. Or you can just add hot water, and then you have hot coffee, and it tastes great. Like it tastes way better than like the crap that's been sitting on top of the burner and. Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks forever. And you can use any kind of coffee. You can use whatever you want. Just get ground coffee. You're good to go. So maybe you want to go to Amazon, pick that up. You should just have one in general. If you like coffee, who doesn't? Go pick one up. Caffeine's great. Let's get back to the show. Do you have a do you have a place that you like to go when you write? Are you writing at your your apartment? Do you like to go to, you know, a coffee shop? What what do you like to do? All right. So I primarily wrote all of console wars in my bed. Uh, lying down, like lying across on my stomach across the bed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's like, I don't know, maybe kind of sad or uh, sounds lazy. Uh, and <laughs> kind of my process would be, I felt like most days would go like this. Uh, my fiance would get up for work uh, or, or like be leaving for work and it would be like eight o'clock or so in the morning. And, uh, and I would kind of start to get up when she's leaving. And then she would give me this like jealous glance and kiss goodbye of like, oh, you get to stay home today. But so, so she would leave and Mike and Mike, uh, would be on ESPN and, uh, and I'd be like, oh fuck. Um, am I allowed to curse? Is that bad? Totally, yeah. All right. So um, I was like, oh fuck shit. Damn. No. Um, <laughs> I was like, what am I going to write today? This, I don't like, I have on this outline. Like I'm never going to be able to do that. Like, where do I even start? Um, and then, so I would watch Mike and Mike and then I would try to like buy some time and I'd go get some coffee and, uh, I'd come back and I'd be like, I'm not ready to write. It's like nine o'clock now. And then I would say to myself, all right, you know what? I'm not going to write today. I'm off the hook. This will be like a day I take off. And then I start to feel relaxed. And then as I'm watching the show, I would start like wanting to write. So it was almost like I had to like relieve myself from the responsibility, um, which is so stupid because I should have figured out that I was doing this almost every day. Um, but I guess those are like the, the, the tricks that we sometimes have to play with ourselves. I, um, and, and also to help me, I always keep the TV on, um, and kind of like a, a typical pattern that kind of fits in with that thing of like, f- I need to make myself feel relaxed and then want to write from a relaxed places. You know, a lot of times I put in psych or the league, mm-hmm. um, or happy endings. And, and so I would, you know, usually I'd watch like an episode or half of an episode. And then I, it was always a good sign when I started to put the volume down and I started to like almost get annoyed when the TV was on and like, I, I would want to choose whatever I was working on as more interesting. And, and that would be my focal point instead of this thing that I loved. And so that was kind of how it would go every day. Um, and uh, yeah. Do you, do you have a program that you like to write in? Because I know I, I've, I've talked to, to some people that like write, like whether it's in the, the, the tech world or something like that, like they, everyone hates writing in Microsoft word for some reason, like they have to use like text, text edit or like, 
I even do all my writing in uh, in notes now just because it syncs on like my iPad and my my laptop and all that stuff. Is there anything like particular that you need to to write in like a specific environment in terms of, of a program? Um, no, I'm just thinking how weird all of us are, um, right? You included. No, I, it's I write like I need a typewriter. I need like it's like uh, you know Philip Seymour Hoffman in State in Maine filmed in my town where he needed a specific typewriter to make corrections to the script. Yeah, no, I had um, the two things that I. The two like weird quirks that I had with console wars was I, I wrote everything in, in Microsoft word. Um, but it, it always had to be zoomed in at 126%. <laughs> what? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Like you had to like fill the, the monitor or something like that from side to side. I don't know that that percentage just seemed right to me. Um, and then, uh, and, and I actually, like, I bought, like, a new, uh, what is this, like, a, a MacBook for the writing of Console Wars, and mm-hmm. I ended up, like, it was, like, such a nice, fancy computer, I didn't want to, like, dirty it up with, like, first draft and stuff. So I ended up writing most of the book on my, like, old laptop, because I was like, <laughs> oh, this is the one, that felt to me like the, like, the, like, text edit version or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, the program was Microsoft Word, but it was like, all right, on here, I can kind of just, like, screw around and spitball ideas, um, and so that was how it went. <laughs> nice. Um, let's let's talk about video games for a second because it's uh, it's an interesting kind of environment right now in the the world of video games with VR becoming a really big thing and Nintendo kind of on the ropes a little bit with uh, you know a new console that's coming on the way. But Nintendo is not the company that it was even five years ago, uh, let alone, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, um, back when the Super Nintendo was out, when you were talk, kind of talking about yeah. console wars. So um, do you care about any of this stuff? Do you care about, like, not like console wars in terms of the, the, the way it is right now with Sega, Microsoft, excuse me, Sony, Microsoft, and, and Sony, but say, what did I just say? Sony, Microsoft, and Nintendo. Um do you, do you have any interest? Are you like, oh, I got to see what Nintendo's going to like hit us with at E3 or anything like that? Yeah, yeah. No, I I, I definitely have like a special place in my heart for Sega and Nintendo, even now that the book is done. Um, and, you know, I'm not speaking with people at those companies. Uh, I, I'm not sure whether that's because of my writing about them or whether it's because the reason I wrote about them was because mm. they played such a big part of my childhood. Um, but I really do want the best for Nintendo. And I really... Like kind of shake my head and roll my eyes when I read things like last week with Nintendo uh, firing that girl. I believe her name is Allison Rapp, and there's yeah the translator. Yeah. yeah, whether it's because they said because she was moonlighting, or whether it's really because she, has, you know, she has a vocal social media presence that and was dealing with people who were angry at her, and it was just like. I don't know. To me, that seems like Nintendo getting involved with the same types of problems that they used to get involved with, and seeming like oblivious to them. And, and like they, a Japanese company, huh? Like yeah, sounds, it and it's sounds, the same yeah. thing. It's where it's like the whole thing with Nintendo was always it wasn't what they say; it was how they said it. It was like mm. their bedside manner. And yeah. so, yeah, yeah. I, I I don't know that girl. I don't know what happened, but I know that Nintendo dealt with it terribly from a communication standpoint. Like they shouldn't yeah, yeah. even lead to that speculation, or I don't know. Um, but I am like especially curious what they do, and uh, uh, in terms of like Sony and Microsoft and gaming in general. Um, I would, I probably wasn't interested before writing console wars, but I have become pretty interested 
And, uh, and, and now I'm especially interested from a writing standpoint because I'm writing a new book about virtual reality and, mm-hmm. uh, and all those companies factor into that. So, um, you know, it, it, I, I still don't play games all that much, but I, I love games and I love, and like if there was any industry whose news that I'm up to date with or that I care about the most, it would be the gaming industry and it would particularly be Nintendo, what they're doing. And I, and I really do want the best for them. I hope that they're, I hope the NX is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I have Wii U. I love the Wii U. I, (laughs) I think, yeah. Anyway, I, I, I am oddly similar to, to you these days where I don't have a current generation. I don't even have a Wii U. Got rid of my Wii U. Don't have a PlayStation 4, Xbox One. I have my 3DS because there's still some fun Nintendo stuff on there. But um, I would love to be really excited about what Nintendo has to offer for for, for people today. And I, I saw, uh, I think it was an MSNBC like conference that they did and um, Gary Vaynerchuk was being interviewed and the interviewer asked him what would be the one company that desperately needs to get, like he wants to get his hands on, like could desperately use like what he's doing in terms of like course corrections for, for companies <laughs> and stuff. And he said in the perfect, uh, perfect, like almost New York accent, Nintendo and Mario and, uh, <laughs> and, I forget how he even said like consoles. He said like cancels or something like that. It was it was really fascinating because they're finally starting to get into the iPhone marketplace and stuff like that. And uh, hopefully they can write this ship. They got some new leadership and um, they seem to have a pretty good young team that's up and coming, making some some fun stuff too. So yeah, but my problem with them. Uh, the main problem is the communication stuff, but also, yeah, yeah, for I, sure. you know, why I would, why I too would love to take over their company, um, or or why there seems like there could be so much to be done there that isn't being done is because you know, I'd say the two things that they do great or that they have that is a unique asset is their games are incredible for the mm-hmm. most part, and their IP, and I just think that they don't do enough with the IP. I, you know, that was something I thought about a lot during console wars because. Um, there was a time and maybe even now where video games are kind of, um, still not treated as, as the, as an art form like Mm -hmm. music or movies. And, and it always reminded me of, of like comics, how comics went through this stage where it was like, you know, this is just like a waste of your time. This is uh, really low class art. And that has changed so much. And one of the things that's changed that is what they have done with IP. And, um, you know, I think the comics did start off as, thing for kids in the same way that Nintendo's games were for kids, but you and I are in our thirties. Um, and, and those of us who grew up loving Nintendo and still love Nintendo have grown up. Um, I think that I would love to see them do more stuff with their intellectual property with Mario, whether it's like a Netflix show, like they were supposed to have with Zelda or they should just be exploring all these things. I'd like to see them try 10 things and strike out on seven, but I feel like three things would work. And that that just seems like it's not going to happen. It just seems like even with great, I mean, I think Reggie is, is a really smart guy. And all these people at Nintendo, I, I, I've spoken to them. I'm impressed by them. But it just seems like it's it's so hard to get the company to move in a different direction, whether it's because of the, how the company is run in Japan or whether mm. there's some – I don't know what the what goes on in that black box right now. But <laughs> I really just wish that like Sega, they just tried a lot of things and yeah. were willing to to lose on them, you know, Um so maybe maybe this will be and and I will say 
uh, from from following Nintendo, they are just increasingly like they are frustrating in the sense of how much potential there is, and like in terms of what they're doing, it just seems like they never do the obvious like thing that everyone else is doing today. Like they can't get their online stuff straight, they can't get their account stuff straight. Their consoles are right now kind of messed up. Like they're just not where they should be opposed to the competition it's just they make badass games but they just can't do anything else correct besides making really good games but hopefully uh they can turn this around and yeah like i said it's like from everything that i've seen it's just everything is kind of directed by japan and everyone else kind of has to like make do with what japan says and uh that's uh probably not the best place to be in right now but Good luck, Nintendo. Um, I, I wanted to talk to you uh, about how did this get made and how how did you get involved uh, with with that that show and, and that series and, and producing these awesome investigative pieces for for <laughs> Slash Film, uh, where you like first if if you haven't listened to How Did This Get Made, it's it's an incredible podcast where uh, they talk just about the. Like the the movies that we all remember, like Hackers or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles two or just anything else. The yeah, Demolition and- Man, Bloodsport. But see, uh, like these are great movies. And that's why like I almost listen to this show and I'm like, at least they're on board. Like they get crank. They get crank one and crank two. They get fast and furious movies. Um but it, it's all about just talking about how ridic- ridiculous this stuff is, and then also for the most part, like how ridiculous the production of these movies were. So how did you get involved with those guys? And, and what's it been like doing these investigative pieces on these, these ridiculous movies? Sure. So how I got involved with them is probably the best advice that I could give to anyone just with any passion, you know? So the way that you described and the way you feel about their podcast is how I felt. I was just a fan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the show is called how did this get made, but it was meant in the way of like, how the fuck did this get made? <laughs> Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, what are they doing here? Um, and so I contacted Paul Shear, uh, who's one of the hosts along with Jason Manzukis and June Diane Raphael. And I said to Paul, you know, I love the show. You guys are so funny. Uh, but you never actually talk about how <laughs> the movies get made or sometimes they do a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suggested that, somebody uh start writing like supplemental pieces and you know maybe it could be me or if it's not me they should take the idea and do it and so you know why i think that's good advice is you know it's being proactive and it's just trying to improve something that i like that i'm not necessarily a part of so let's say that paul said all right cool and he found one of his writer friends to do it i would still be happy that's it's a better show for it you know mm-hmm. um but paul um knew about console wars and he knew that Seth and Evan were involved with the movie and, you know, we kind of decided to, to see what this would work like on a trial basis. And, and, you know, one of the things that I like most about Hall is that we kind of just played it by ear. Like it would have been, I think it would have been foolish to kind of upfront try to figure out like everything this is going to be, what each piece is going to look like, how it should work. We were kind of just like, let's do the interviews and see what kind of information we get. And so that was kind of how we came up with, the oral history format, which is what most of the pieces have been, though we've also been doing long form interviews and, uh, and, and it's, and it really evolved, you know, I think, and it evolved quickly. I think the first piece, which was top dog, the Chuck Norris movie that it didn't even realize existed, uh, where he partners up with the dog 
Um, I interviewed the animal trainer. I interviewed one of the producers, uh, one of the writers. And that was like, it felt a little bit more like, uh, like, uh, like just funny little quotes almost like, you know, from the animal trainer, just talking about <laughs> how the dog was a better actor than Chuck. Um, but, but what I always like to do, and, and especially with console wars is to like take anecdotes and facts and, and kind of weave them into a narrative story. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, um, that felt, you know, starting from Theodore Rex, which was the most expensive straight to, uh, straight to VHS movie ever. I really felt like we've been able to do that. And, and a lot of that is about kind of doing the same thing that happened with console wars of like identifying the protagonist of the story or the creative through line, which a lot of times is the writer, the director, or so, you know, someone whose vision it really, really, the movie really is good mm-hmm. or bad. And, and who's kind of there from the beginning into the end. Cause in a movie, a lot, you know, people are hired. Sometimes it's just, a week of work. Sometimes it's three months of work, but for usually for the director or for a producer or for a writer, there's someone who's kind of there from the beginning and, and whose baby this is and trying to figure out who that is. And it's been incredible. Um, you know, it, it's hard in some ways because for the most part, these are, um, I think we mentioned some of the better movies with, uh, even teenage movies <laughs> too. You know, there's a lot of movies that, that I like, you know, like Pluto Nash, uh, street fighter, the movie. Yeah, like Street Fighter, or of the ones that I've covered, uh, I mean, what is it? Theodore Rex was terrible. Um, <laughs> the Shaq movie, Steel, uh, Kazam. Kazam, like, yep. These are movies <laughs> where I don't, there's probably a few people who would agree that they're good. And so my job is basically tracking down these people and saying, hey, 20 years ago, you did this horrible thing. Let, let's talk about it. Um, which is. Uh, do, do, do most people seem like very open to talk about these movies that are sometimes considered disasters or just terrible? Um, no, not, not usually. <laughs> um, or, or especially not at first. I think that I, most of the time people fall, in, you know, it's pr- almost like an even split between some who are kind of like, oh man, I really shat the bed there, mm-hmm. versus people who are like, I think it's great. I don't know why people didn't get it. So, um, you know, I, it, it's usually a, it's, it's about a 50, 50 split. Mm-hmm. And, and at first it was definitely hard to get the people who believe that at least what's on the screen is their vision, um, to speak because they thought I was making fun of them. Um, but then once we kind of have a body of work, um, of like these pieces, I, you know, I, I most of the time don't watch the movies ahead of time before speaking with them because I want to I treat this thing as if I'm writing the oral history of the Godfather. And mm. like I'm just my story is based on what I'm hearing and what little, you know, research facts I have. Um, and then I'll watch the movie. But but I think that because I want to tell a character driven story from their perspective, you know, if they think it's great, then that's then don't think it's great until maybe the numbers come in or until someone else tells them otherwise but I want to tell the story from their point of view. And so um, it's been really cool to give them a voice. And it's also really cool to see how movies go wrong and, and kind of the premise of the idea that Paul responded to so, so much was there, there's so many bad movies, but nobody sets out to make a bad movie. It doesn't help anyone financially right. or creatively, but it happens all the time. Like why are these things happening at every time there's going to be a good story because it's not, it's an unexpected outcome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's uh, it, it's something that everyone, if you're listening to this, it means you're listening to a podcast. You should probably go and and download uh, a bunch of of episodes. And there's like there are just some classics in there that I can go back to. And like I remember uh, one of my favorite like back to backs was uh, Face Off and Con Air. That, yeah, that's probably the like the best one two punch. And recently they did Bloodsport. 
before they just did the quest, the Jean Claude Van Damme movie, yes. the Bloodsport one, which unfortunately June wasn't part of. I think is one of the funniest ones. <laughs> um, and so these guys are what I learned. So through this, um, <laughs> I mentioned one of the things I watched constantly when I was writing Console Wars was the League, which mm-hmm. starts Paul and Jason. And so when the when the League was coming to the end, I. you know, talk to Paul and I was like, well, we're writing all these things about terrible movies. Is somebody writing something with as much love and affection for what I think is the best comedy of the, (laughs) of the past 10 years. And he's like, not really. So I worked on a piece that uh, ran on ESPN. It's probably my favorite thing I've written since console wars. Um, It's an oral history of the league. And and I really learned from writing that piece kind of the, why those guys are so good at and why they like doing this. How did this get made? Because, they all have improv backgrounds. So for them, it's almost like when an audience member throws out a suggestion, um, the, the, that suggestion just happens to be a movie that's an hour and a half long and, and kind of terrible. And then they kind of riff off of that. So, you know, that, that's not to say that they don't prepare for these things, but like to them, it's, it, it activates that same part of the brain where it's like, all right, how can I break this down? How can I, you know, as a performer, make this interesting and also make it relatable to people who haven't seen the movie? And, and I think they do a great job of that. You know, if any of your listeners are concerned about um, they haven't seen some of these movies, though, they should definitely go see uh, Con Air and Face Off. Yes. You know, what I liked about the podcast um, was that I felt like I was spending time with them. And even if I didn't know the movie, I never felt lost. And that's, that's kind of hard because I think a lot of bad movie type things are very specific to like, how could they do that in this scene? That doesn't make sense. Or why would this character do that? They always could do a good job of explaining it and really – you know, they're all, they're all working actors and writers and producers in Hollywood. So they talk about it from the perspective of like, you know, breaking it down as like a story. And, and so they do a really good job. Yeah. I, the, the one anecdote from, from face off and from uh, con air that is just unbelievable is that Nicholas Cage walked off the set of face off. And then the next day was on the set of con air. After a day after they wrapped, <laughs> which is just like, yeah, okay, that that kind of that kind of sort of makes sense. Um, and even like super the Super Mario Brothers movie is, oh my god, that's a great episode. Um, any any of the live stuff that 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 they did um, is just really 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 great. Oh my god, great stuff. Um, what what advice do you have for for people out there that um, that just want to write? I, I think for for uh, a lot of people out there, they just they they feel like it seems like writing would be an awesome thing to do. Like I really, like I could really write a good you know thirty minute pilot for a TV show. Or I, I like really want to write a a screenplay for for a film, even if it doesn't get made. Like I just I want to to do it. Like I've seen so many other people do it. That like why can't I do it? Kind of thing. Um, what what advice would you have for people who are just kind of starting from zero and they they just are not to say that they're romanticizing the idea of like you mentioned way back before writing a script then making it into a 200 million dollar movie um what's the first step or what advice would you give to people that want to make that first step well i think it falls under the category obvious but i think that you should write um i think that there's <laughs> there's a high number of people who talk about wanting to write um, versus actually writing, and and that's important for two reasons. One is, you know, when you do it, you should see, you can see if you actually like it. You know, the idea of writing is different than the writing itself, mm-hmm. and also having content is so important. Having something to send someone, maybe it's good, maybe it's not, but you know that that's you're you're more likely to get feedback that way. But but 
you know, it's kind of like just actually doing it. And we could talk about ways to accomplish that or what to do once that happens. But like, you know, a, a good thing kind of to this point, like when I, when I was speaking with Paul, um, a little bit after doing the, how did this get made pieces? I said, you know, I really, you know, thanks so much for like making it so easy. Like when we, when we started doing this, we just kind of jumped in and, and he let me do it the way that I thought I wanted to do it. And then we talked from there. It wasn't like, let's plan out every detail. And I said, you know, I really appreciate you just kind of like letting me go forward so I can process it in my head first. And he said, no, he said, I really appreciate you doing it. He said, you wouldn't believe how often someone comes to me with an idea or I agree to do something with someone and I say, yeah, just write something up. And he said, 90% of the time, I never hear from them again. You know, 90% of the time the people don't mm-hmm. write something up. They just talk about it and then they don't actually do it. Mm-hmm. And so just doing it is important. You know, maybe that wouldn't lead to wanting to continue to work together, but don't, you know, don't be the person who talks about something and gets someone excited or gets that door open and then doesn't put your foot in the door by writing it. Yeah. It, I mean, it's almost like so many people just kind of want the they want the check ahead of time before they they do the writing for for some people i know for me in the past for stuff that i don't want to do it's like if i don't know that there's going to be that financial incentive at the end or even if there's something that i want to do it's just like all right well i need to trade this time for money it has to be money but if i don't have that financial incentive it's just even harder to kind of get get started with that stuff no well that's a good point because it's kind of speaks to like, why are you writing this? There's absolutely nothing wrong with writing for money. That's, you know, we all need to make a living. And so whether it's some things you write for money or some things that this is like a passion project, just figure out why you're doing it and, and what you're doing. And so like, you know, as I've become gotten into a position where I can maybe write more things for, you know, take a risk of write something on spec, Mm -hmm. um, because I have money coming in from a book. Um, you know, I really start to get a sense of the kinds of things that I like to write. I, I generally like writing stories where I like the people that I'm writing about. You know, one of the, um, I won't say who, but one of the initial ideas for a follow-up to Council Wars, it was going to really focus around someone who I ended up not really wanting to spend that much time with and write about. And mm-hmm. and so it was like, all right, so I should really, this is my time. I, I Here's the kinds of things I like to write about. So let's figure out what, to, what you like to write about and what you write about best. Um and then, and then, uh, getting it out there is always a hard thing, but you know, if, if you are making good, if you're doing good work and you're, uh, offering it to people for free or just figuring out how to make other people's lives better, there's a, there's a pretty good chance that it'll work out. So, you know, it's, it's sometimes a hard road of, uh, writing stuff and not getting paid much at first, or maybe you write stuff and get paid and then you're doing stuff on the side. That's what you really want to be doing. So at least you have that platform to show other people going forward. Um, you know, writing is a, is a, is, is a business that often doesn't seem to have a track or doesn't have a track, but the best thing that you can have to help make the locomotive go is credits and mm-hmm. say, you know, when I'm reaching out to the people for how did this get made? Here, you know, maybe, maybe you think this is the best movie you ever made and no one else did, or maybe you think it's an embarrassment, but here's like these previous pieces. Here's how I talk to people. Here's what it looks like. Could I, you know, could you spare a half an hour? Could you spare 10 minutes? Could you spare two hours? Whatever, um, you know, figure out how to make it work. What, what should people do, uh, once they, they have started writing, like they have some pieces, um, where, where do you think that 
people should, I mean, this is such a general question. I don't even know how to ask it, but you know, if, if people start putting together some pieces of writing, um, what, what is the best way for a new writer to get noticed? Uh, I think the best way for a new writer to get noticed is not what I did. It's to write for a popular distribution platform, which is mostly an online website, Mm -hmm. you know, like, um, you know, like Grantland is a good example. A Mm -hmm. lot of those people who were there from the beginning, which is a, which was a very hard job to get. I'm I'm not saying otherwise, but like those people developed fan bases, people, they also honed their craft. Um, and you know, whether it's like the AV club or fast company, you know, places that do tend to have a lot of young writers, um, you know, you start to expect a certain type of content from a person and, and continually, uh, see content from these people. So uh, it doesn't have to be those places. It doesn't even have to be on a certain level, but I would say it's more a matter of like figuring out what your objective is. Is it your objective to make money? Mm-hmm. Uh, then, you know, probably writing for like the AV club is not the way to go. But if your objective is to get, you know, get into writing about comedy and movies or pop culture, that then it's definitely a way to go. Um, so trying to figure that out and work backwards. And also um, I found that it, <laughs> As some as difficult as it sometimes may be, um, doing like the slash film, how does this get made pieces? Because they come out every two weeks, which is a really tight window for tracking down people and writing this. Yeah. Um, you know, that's been really helpful to me because prior to that, aside from my one deadline with console wars, I never really had like worked on a deadline. Um, and and so this time it's it's a little bit different. When I wrote console wars, I was basically in my room, lying across my bed for um, <laughs> nine months writing and. Uh, I went a little crazy as one might when you're spending all day alone uh, at the keyboard. Um, but so this time I wanted to try to, 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 I wanted to keep writing in the meantime. So I have, mm-hmm. you know, while I'm writing up this new book, I'm writing other pieces and I'm writing the pieces for how did this get made. Um, and, and it's gotten me into a, just a good habit of, uh, of uh, working consistently. And also, you know, the, the other thing that I've really loved about the how did this get made experience is, you know, I go into each piece and this is advice. This is such, this is advice I can't stress enough that I think is helpful for me is not, not knowing what the story is, you know, don't go in with a preconceived notion. Um, and letting you, if, if it's a nonfiction piece, you know, letting your interviews dictate what that story is, mm-hmm. or at least basing it off of that. And that played a large part in console wars and, and, and especially for this new book. And, and, and the reason I'm mentioning it now is because, um, with console wars, it's just a story that happened 20 years ago. By the time I started, I had done several interviews and I knew the beginning, middle and the end. Whereas now with this book about virtual reality, which is a story that's still happening mm. and will still be in the beginning phases when the book comes out next year. Um, you know, it, it's a little bit scary not to know here's the beginning, here's the middle, here's the end. Cause who knows what that will be? Uh, who knows what's going to happen over the next year while I'm writing this. Yeah. Um, but, but having that practice of doing these things every two weeks of like, Basically, it's just me getting ingredients and figuring out how to make a dish um, and doing that now 20 times over the past um, 40 weeks or so, um, you know, that make, gives me confidence to, and it also helps that muscle, that storytelling muscle uh, as I'm collecting information for a new book and just, you know, you know, that, that's, a, that's important. Those are skills that are very helpful to have. Yeah. And it's going to be a, um, it's going to be a great ride to, to kind of watch with, I guess it's October that Sony will have VR yeah. out. And um, like we said, maybe f- 
for all we know, Nintendo might have some kind of VR thing going on. There's HTC. There's, of course, Oculus Rift. And uh, that is probably the one thing that would get me back into picking up like a PlayStation 4 is if the the Sony VR is is really great. It seems to be reasonably priced. And uh, it's exciting, man. VR, VR could be and they should do Lawnmower Man, by the way, for how this <laughs> get made. That's great, great film. Uh, Pierce Brosnan's one of his greatest performances, and uh, it's just uh, it's going to be really fun to watch as as we kind of uh, come to an end today. What I mean, do you, do you have any final thoughts? Like, I know I, I tried to kind of like frame this. This is like like man, you're just making so much content right now. Like you're writing so much and, and doing so much. Um, what advice do you have for people that that are just kind of looking to? This, this is a really bad question, but just looking <laughs> no, to kind of, I, like looking to you know get where you are, like looking to write a book or just get get going and get get noticed. And I know we hit on a, a couple of those things, but just like any final words on any of that stuff. Yeah, I guess I'll end with a couple of pieces of, of advice that have served me well. Yeah. One that I feel like is my own personal motto to myself, which is, uh, you know, bite off more than you can chew and then just figure out how to chew quicker. (laughs) So, uh, you know, I like, I think that (laughs) it was, I can see it being foolish to take on the, how did this get made thing for every two weeks while I'm writing another (laughs) book. Mm -hmm. Um, but I figured out how to do it. And I think, as I said, it's made me a lot better at, at the book writing. Um, and, and I have had a lot of fun doing it. And then the other, the best piece of advice that I ever received was from an old manager that I had, uh, Jim Strader, who was just kind of talking, he was the first manager that Joan and I had for our screenwriting. And he was talking about, you know, like how to, how to make it in Hollywood and how to basically, you know, there, there isn't like a track, but, but he said that when, you know, uh, as most people probably know, like the way that most working writers make their money is by um, getting job assignments. You know, it's not just writing original screenplays. It's usually someone has the rights to something or they're looking for a writer of something. So mm. how do you become someone who's on that list of like, here's the guys we would go for at this budget. Here's the guys we go for at that budget. And his advice for how to get onto that list was to just make people's jobs easier, you know, you want when people look at your name and when they consider you for something to like, you want that thought to be like, Oh yeah, I know what to expect from this guy. He's not going to be a problem to deal with. He's going to deliver this on time or here's the kinds of things that I would expect. So just kind of trying to put yourself into the shoes of, of the people that you want to work with and, and figuring out like, how am I going to make their day easier? You know, whether if you're interviewing people, Um, like just like an interview people is a good example. Like you can obviously do it in person by phone over email. Um, I, you know, I have my preference and I especially don't ever like doing it by email, but they're doing me a favor for the most part. So I want to make it easier on them. If email is best for them or, or maybe if they want to meet in person, I'll figure out a way to do it. Um, so kind of just figuring out how to make people's days easier and better. Um, and then, and, and then accommodating. Well, I know this is uh, this is number th- third time that we've chatted, but I, I know it's not going to be the last because the there's so many things going on for you, man, and it's always great to to catch up. I, I still am a, a terrible person, and I don't get to New York enough. But uh, <laughs> I, I really hope we can you know grab some coffee and, and chat sometime, and finally meet in person and uh, and hang out in in New York. But it's uh, it's always great to to talk to you uh, via Skype as well. 
Yeah, you too. Or maybe one day we'll meet virtually. But uh, but hope <laughs> you can grab some coffee soon. Absolutely. And that's going to do it for uh, another episode of uh, We Are Recording. If you want to check out more great podcasts, you can go to fitcast.network. You're going to find podcasts that are just going to make your life better. And also, uh, highly recommend if, if you've uh, haven't already make sure that you're checking out uh, Blake's stuff at first you can go to the website blakejharris.com uh, and also you can jump on twitter at blakejharrisnyc uh, to hit him up on on twitter because that's of course uh, that's going to be the way how I hit up a lot of people to 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 potentially get them on this show it's a great platform if you ever want to uh you know say hi to someone say that you appreciate your work that's a great way to do it and then finally i'm gonna say and uh not only because i own this book uh in two formats now no (laughs) no i own it in three formats um okay so console wars i i want to recommend this to to anyone that has any interest in a great story because it's not just about you know, Sega and Nintendo. It's like a great corporate story as well. It's lots of great drama, lots of great characters involved. It's available on uh, hardcover, but now it's in paperback for $11.75 on Amazon. It's just ridiculous. You can pick it up uh, on Audible and uh, you can pick it up on Kindle uh, for $14 as well. So you can save some sheets of paper and, and pick it up on there, but uh, just a great book. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what the the next book is uh, for you, Blake, and uh, of course the the other projects that you're working on involving console wars. I uh, can't wait to see updates on all that stuff. So uh, thank you again for for taking the time to to jump on and chat and catch up and and share some some great advice and some insight for for people out there. Awesome. Thanks for having me on, and thanks for you know, taking a chance on me a couple of years ago when Council Wars hadn't even come out yet and uh, having an interesting conversation with me. Thanks so much for all your support. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. And thank you everyone out there that's tuning in and listening. Thank you for your support as this new podcast network gets started. Please check out some of the other shows. Give me feedback. If you have any questions, you can go right to fitcast.network. There's an easy portal to, to give me feedback right at the top of the website. So thank you uh, so much to everyone else out there. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Take care.